Hello, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. But the IPCC has a long way to go. And if you look at the coverage of Indigenous issues in the sixth assessment report, certainly better than it's ever been. But the IPCC was so far behind uh, even reports like the U.S. National Climate Assessment that we really are still at the beginning stages. And I wouldn't say that the IPCC has succeeded in actually being a just and equitable report. Today on American Indian Airways, an in-depth conversation with one of the leading indigenous academic scholars who worked on the IPCC 6 assessment report, its faults, trials, and tribulations with indigenous participation and the report's incompleteness. All that and more here on American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone On February 27th of 2022, the IPCC 6 Assessment Report, Working Group 2, titled Climate Change 2022, Impacts, Adaptations, and Vulnerability Report, was released with participation from Indigenous scholars, academics, and scientists in still a relatively new phenomenon. For more than 16 years, Indigenous peoples were largely excluded in participating in the previous IPCC assessment reports. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was established by the United Nations Environment Program and the World Meteorological Organization in 1988. In 1990, the IPCC's first assessment report was published. However, in 2007, the IPCC and former U.S. Vice President Al Gore won a Nobel Peace Prize while Indigenous peoples were absent and often locked out of the IPCC and WMO process. Today's guest is one of several Indigenous academics, scholars, and scientists to have participated and contributed to the IPCC's sixth assessment report. Our guest for the hour is a George Willis Pack Professor of Environment and Sustainability and Affiliate Professor of Native American Studies and Philosophy at the University of Michigan, teaching in the SEAS Environmental Justice Specialization. He is an enrolled member of the Potawatomi Nation, and his research addresses environmental justice, focusing on moral and political issues concerning climate policy and indigenous peoples, the ethics of cooperative relationships between indigenous peoples and science organizations, and problems of indigenous justice in public and academic discussions of food sovereignty, environmental justice, and the Anthropocene. 
Our guest for the hour also serves on the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council, the Management Committee of the Michigan Environmental Justice Coalition, the Board of Directors of the Pesticide Action Network North America, and the Resilient American Roundtable of National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. I have the honor and pleasure to introduce Dr. Kyle White on our in-depth conversation on the IPCC's sixth assessment report and the phenomena of indigenous people participating in the most recent publication. Yes, I think it's important to uh, really begin with a a history or just a basic understanding of the history of indigenous people really trying to have a voice to exercise leadership uh, within pretty dominant, you know, scientific institutions. Uh, you know, I mean, I think it's even before we talk about climate science, uh, you know, going back a hundred years, uh, you know, even, even longer than that into the 19th century where you had fields like anthropology and others that were wanting to speak to issues that uh, related to indigenous people and have control over uh, indigenous knowledge, there were always indigenous people, even if uh, they're erased within uh, history, but oftentimes they can be found uh, in archives who were speaking back against that and who were speaking you know, out uh, and resisting the attempts by those scientific fields to dominate uh, indigenous people. And with respect to climate science, you know, I think it's important to note that in the 1970s and the 1980s, uh, in different parts of the world, there were indigenous people that were involved uh, in different national efforts, such as in New Zealand uh, and other countries, to get a grip on what was happening scientifically with climate change. And so oftentimes people... Uh, especially non-Indigenous people, forget those uh, histories of Indigenous people uh, uh, taking leadership and seeking to resist uh, forms of scientific assessment of climate change that were not taking Indigenous people's issues seriously and taking Indigenous people's knowledge seriously. And actually in the United States, with the development of the National Climate Assessment, Uh, especially in the 1990s, uh, there was a conference in the mid-1990s on uh, indigenous issues and indigenous knowledge led by many uh, different indigenous organizers and indigenous scientists and indigenous knowledge keepers. And the very first chapter or the very first report of the U.S. National Climate Assessment had a chapter on indigenous issues that actually had an anti-colonial critique in it, and that was in 2001. So the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, you know, has had some of the least uh, involvement over the years, uh, especially at the levels of leadership uh, of indigenous people. And given that the IPCC has a global impact, has a global audience, it's been extremely unfortunate that it's only recently that there's been something like a set of indigenous scholars and scientists who have had some involvement in the IPCC reporting. And going back a couple of decades, the the question had been raised uh, to the IPCC about why the report 
had such a narrow focus on what knowledge counts about climate change. And the IPCC had actually offered all sorts of different reasons which are problematic. One was that indigenous knowledge is not peer-reviewed knowledge. Uh, you know, and for each reason that they offered, <laughs> you know, I think many people pointed out the ridiculousness of those reasons. Like, for example, uh, is indigenous knowledge not peer-reviewed knowledge? Or actually, is it knowledge that has a higher standard of peer review than what passes for science today? Uh, you know, in an indigenous knowledge system, to be a knowledge keeper, you know, you don't submit your uh, understanding of truth to anonymous uh, peer reviewers, um, rather you have multiple layers of expert assessment, community assessment, uh, and you have to keep your credentials up and you're in the community eye. And so you're constantly being peer reviewed, both for the relevance of your knowledge and for its applicability to the needs and the aspirations of the community who you serve as a knowledge keeper. And so for years, the IPCC uh, had made all these excuses and so recently, the IPCC in the sixth assessment report probably has had more indigenous authors than uh, it's ever had. Uh, and I believe a lot of the IPCC assessments, so I don't know every single fact in detail, uh, have typically had next to no uh, indigenous authorship uh, in them. And certainly nobody that was robustly writing about or contributing indigenous perspectives on science or even indigenous knowledge about climate change. But the IPCC has a long way to go. And if you look at the coverage of indigenous issues in the sixth assessment report, certainly better than it's ever been. Uh, but the IPCC was so far behind uh, uh, even reports like the U.S. National Climate Assessment uh, that we really are still at the beginning Stages. And I wouldn't say that the IPCC has uh, succeeded in actually being a just and equitable report, um, uh, but it certainly there certainly has been a difference. I know you've uh, written about this uh, elsewhere. When we talk about the, the climate crisis for Indigenous peoples and their respective First Nations in the context of Emer the first wave of settler colonial violence uh, indigenous people's ancestors have experienced uh, climate crises, if you will. And I was wondering if you could put that into context in relationship to the report and the sense of urgency in talking about what most people understand climate crisis today as but for indigenous peoples is another generation if you will of climate crisis yeah the the question uh you know larry that you just asked is one that gets out to the heart of why so many scientific assessments are very very far off in terms of the way in which they're studying both solutions to climate change, but also the, the causes that make it so that communities like indigenous people, but also many black and brown communities, many communities of the, the global south are facing more severe risks, uh, already enduring severe impacts, uh, more so than other communities, especially economically and racially uh, privileged communities in different parts of the, the world. And part of the issue is that when I think about the education that I've received in the, the dominant, you know, society, right, in public schools and private schools and uh, higher education, like the place that 
I currently work at the University of Michigan, when we're offered information about the history of different societies, we're pretty much given information that the major changes that have happened over hundreds and hundreds of years were due to social conflicts, due to wars, uh, due to scientific discoveries, for example, that had sweeping changes, and other types of factors of what causes uh, society to change. But in none of those, you know, none of those histories are we taught about the relationship uh, with climate change and the relationship with the environment. It's only recently that non-Indigenous uh, uh, historians and others have tried to bring out uh, the role of the environment, the role of climate change uh, in what makes a society uh, change and transition and what creates these different historical trends. But if you look at Indigenous education and Indigenous history, and I've seen this across so many different Indigenous communities, the entire history is understood and told as the interplay between society and the climate system, society and the environment. And so Indigenous storytelling traditions, Indigenous uh, accounts of history, uh, Indigenous lessons learned from generations, they're never solely about society. They're always about society as it relates to the environment. And so a lot of different Indigenous traditions have really important knowledge in them accumulated over generations about how our relationships to the environment and to the climate can go awry and what we need to do to be better uh, and to be able to live much more harmoniously or just in a, a better way uh, with the environment and with the climate. But a lot of scientific assessments uh, already start from this idea that it's just recently that it's dawned on us that we have these relationships uh, to the environment, to the climate system. And so that's why they come up with these scenarios about climate change that up until recently never talked about things like the fact that the communities that face more severe risks from climate change, that they're facing those risks not just because they're in the wrong place at the wrong time, but because they have been subject to colonialism and racism, because they've been subject to uh, patriarchy or sexual and gender-based discrimination, to ableism. And in my work and the work of a number of other indigenous and allied scholars, we started looking at why it was that indigenous people and other diverse communities were facing the, the brunt of the climate change risks. Uh, and you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Dr. Kyle White of the Potawatomi Nation, professor and scientist who worked on the recent IPCC 6 assessment report. We're discussing the legacy of the IPCC, the WMO, the phenomena of indigenous participation, as well as the incompleteness of the report in relationship to settler colonial violence and the climate crisis. And now back to the interview. The answers were in what had happened to many of our communities through having experienced colonialism and racial capitalism and other forms of disempowerment. Yet if those factors are so critical, how come it's just recently 
that they're now being offered up by more mainstream scientists as factors creating climate change vulnerability, uh, but also presenting barriers uh, solutions like renewable energy. And so I think from an indigenous uh, standpoint, or at least from one indigenous standpoint, we're actually trying to make science objective to sort of, you know, put a scientific term and maybe turn it on its head a bit. Uh, we're trying to actually say that the way that a lot of dominant science has the way that it's studied climate change has actually not been very objective. It hasn't actually been very accountable to the information that's available. And we're trying to bring out the fact that our traditions were already building us up to the point where we can understand how complex phenomena like colonialism are integrally tied to what makes some communities further threatened and facing greater urgencies with respect to climate change than others. In listening to you, how does uh, settler colonial responsibilities, uh, whether it be impending or, or pending, uh, factor into the conversation? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, one of the one of the huge issues that has come up with respect to uh, climate change. Uh, and we can look at a situation like what indigenous people are facing in the United States as an example. So, you know, before the pandemic, I used to connect in person with, you know, hundreds of different uh, tribal, other native communities on climate change through a lot of different great programs that I've been part of. And I've recently been able to return back to that work uh, now that the public health situation seems to be uh, at least improving a bit more. And, you know, what we found, <laughs> what I found across all of those relationships was that, uh, you know, Native people uh, have already identified the the climate change issues. They've already looked at the, the scenarios that they're facing. They're already working on it. You know, every time I connect with uh, a Native person, they, they tell me about <laughs> something they're already doing, they're already setting up uh, to prepare for or to mitigate climate change. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, unlike a lot of other people in the world, uh, you know, we don't need to invest a lot of money into just <laughs> making us aware that climate change is severe and it's something that we need to take seriously. And so when I listened to people, when I talked and communicated to them, when I thought about uh, the communities that I'm from or most familiar with, uh, whether in the Great Lakes region or in Oklahoma, uh, you know, people were not actually as concerned about the climate change impacts themselves, like, you know, sea level rise or uh, drought. Uh, it wasn't like the impact itself was where the, the drama is. Uh, rather, what they were concerned about was that they didn't have the land base mm -hmm. to be able to adapt to climate change they didn't have a big enough territory or that the U.S. had denied them for generations their traditional practices like burning, fire stewardship, and that they needed mo to do more of that to be able to make the land more resilient. Or they were concerned that they were in an economic situation and a financial and policy situation where they couldn't create 
a renewable energy economy within their tribal community and that they wouldn't have access as well to markets outside of their tribal community to, to sell the energy that they were generating. And all of these issues with respect to climate change are not ones that came up because of the current climate change crisis. They're ones that the United States put in play a long, long time ago. The United States put in play land dispossession in the 19th and 18th centuries. The United States, uh, in the same time period, put in play the denial of uh, indigenous sovereignty and self-determination. Again, during the same time period, the United States set up conditions that would greatly limit, and to use a word that we don't typically use, to sort of embargo uh, indigenous economies from being able to succeed in the colonial world that was being forced uh, upon indigenous people. And so at the time, in the 19th century and the 18th century, when these things were happening, they were wrong. They were wrong then. The United States should have addressed them. Uh, the United States should have done something about them then. And each decade subsequently, it always came up that the U.S. needed to do something about it. They needed to stop abusing indigenous people's human rights. And so by the time we fast forward to the current climate change crisis or ordeal, it comes up again that the U.S. has not done anything about these factors that now prevent indigenous people from preparing for and mitigating climate change. And so, you know, Larry, you mentioned the difference between impending and pending responsibilities. Uh, an impending responsibility is when we think about climate change in terms of just the climate change impacts themselves. So how do I make sure that, you know, sea level rise or severe drought is less, uh, you know, right? So that, you know, a particular tribe or indigenous people who might be subject to that impact faces less harm. Uh, and certainly that's a huge part of the equation. You know, how do we make these impacts less extreme? But a pending responsibility is one that is it's pending, meaning that uh, it's a responsibility that the United States has been it needs has needed to do something about for a long time and still hasn't. And it happens to be that those responsibilities that the United States has neglected are the responsibilities that if they were to enact them, it would make it possible for indigenous people to be able to exercise leadership in the solutions to climate change. In listening uh, to you and in, in, uh, in just understanding, you know, we're place-based peoples and part of our living cultures is uh, that relationality and, and understanding uh, the changes that are happening in our vitality and adaptability to to adjust to those changes for future gener generations and create a means of cultural sustainability and and talking about um, you know where we are right now so many of us like myself included you know live away from our traditional homelands or live away from our communities or, or nations and and so how how does our how does that reflect back on, on us and our responsibility? Because uh, so many of us live away from home, right, is part of right the process of settler colonialism, but also because of economic survivability. 
so how do, how do you see that that uh, dynamic uh, coming into play and just talking about our responsibilities right now? Yeah, important question. And, you know, I oftentimes understand colonialism in particular as a form of disempowerment, a form of oppression that specifically targets a, a community's capacity to adapt. And I don't... Uh, you know, I don't uh, uh, necessarily think there's like one way of understanding colonialism or one way of understanding capitalism. I think it's important that we listen to people that offer different theories because those theories are coming from their experiences and their knowledges. But one thing I'd just like to offer is that, you know, colonialism can be understood as a form of disempowerment that affects the people's capacity to adapt uh, to changes. I think that's actually different from capitalism, where capitalism is about economic exploitation and marginalization. But for example, if it was just racial capitalism that had been uh, forced upon indigenous people, but not colonialism, <laughs> um, the, the, there, there is a scenario that indigenous people would have been able to ad adapt, uh, would have been able to exercise leadership, and would have been able to topple uh, racial capitalism. <laughs> but the problem was is that racial capitalism was accompanied, and I know there's different ways of understanding these relationships, by a lot of different types of colonialism, by a lot of different types of patriarchy, by a lot of different types of, of ableism. And that created a, a really, really challenging uh, set of circumstances that indigenous people had to face. And if you look at societies that did not have to reckon with colonialism, uh, or at least didn't bear the brunt of colonialism, and who caused colonialism themselves, like the United States, for example, uh, you can notice how much they've done to ensure uh, their adaptability, uh, even if their adaptability is destroying the earth uh, due to its reliance on fossil fuels and greedy forms of consumerism and, and corporate enterprise. Uh, but, you know, for example, take the United States that has uh, people uh, living all over the world, citizens of the U.S. living all over the world, citizens living in different states and moving across different states. And notice how much the U.S. has invested in ensuring that its citizens, uh, you know, especially uh, people that are privileged, uh, are able to remain plugged in to the major activities of the United States, whether the political system or the economic system. And then look at many indigenous communities that bore the brunt of colonialism. And, you know, many of us feel uh, like it's a huge challenge when we don't live in a certain area of our homelands to stay connected to those communities. And there's few, if any, resources available for our tribes to be able to create that adaptability, to create that sense of uh, community beyond a certain understanding of our homelands. And it doesn't help that we keep being force-fed this idea that the tribe uh, is mainly something that exists in a very small uh, area in some location uh, in North America. You know, that doesn't help us. And scholars that focus on urban issues have really challenged uh, this way of thinking about our communities uh, as either rural or, or urban or located in this reservation and nowhere else. Um, and so 
the climate change and the climate science literature uh, has also not done us a favor. It's made it very challenging to speak expansively uh, of indigenous communities in terms of their true demographic distribution, in terms mm-hmm. of their true religious distribution, in terms of their true educational and economic distribution. And again, we see this idea that uh, climate science has really forced us to think about just the very small tribal unit and the people that live uh, in that particular unit in some uh, permanent sense. And I think that this is something which has really distorted uh, uh, what it means for indigenous people to take action collectively to address climate change. Um, It's made it so that if you look at a lot of the climate science uh, literature on indigenous people, you're not going to see a lot about the indigenous grassroots movements, the indigenous nonprofit organizations, the indigenous actions that take place in urban areas in coalition with black and brown communities. You're not going to see a lot about what uh, indigenous people think or do that live outside of some, uh, you know, predefined way of understanding the boundaries of their homelands. Uh, And instead you get a sole emphasis on uh, a very small tribal unit, often a reservation or a statistical area uh, or a census area. And so I think the next generation of, uh, you know, indigenous uh, scholars and climate scientists, you know, many of whom are working right now, are directly seeking to explode this. And I think there are a lot of tribal leaders that are seeking to change this as well. I see more and more tribes that are trying to build in better uh, programs for uh, people that live uh, outside of the statistical areas or the service areas to be able to participate in political life, in economic life, uh, in social life. And as many people will point out, you know, Native families and so on, many of whom have already been doing that. Uh, but I think it's important that we think about what it would mean to fully harness our potential as communities that are living in all sorts of different places yet retain that community identity, no matter if somebody grew up there, no matter if somebody has a particular cultural orientation or religious orientation, uh, but to think about our communities in that genuinely sovereign way. And that concludes part one of our two-part interview with Dr. Kyle White of the Potawatomi Nation. He is a professor at the University of Michigan. He is a scientist and one of the main contributing authors in the recent IPCC 6 assessment report. We're discussing the, the phenomena of indigenous participation in the report, as well as its com- incompleteness, settler colonial violence, and environmental justice, and so much more. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back.
teeth as it is. So take heart and take care of your language. Life is beautiful. If you got the sense to take care of your source of perfection. Mother Nature, she's the daughter of God and the source of all protection. Look right now and you will see she's only here by the skin of her teeth as it is. So take heart and take care of your The song Carry It On by Buffy St. Marie here on American Indian Airwaves. In the final segment of today's program, we go back to our interview with Dr. Kyle White. He is a professor at the University of Michigan teaching on a wide variety of subjects, including indigenous studies, environmental justice, food sovereignty, and the Anthropocene, to name just a few. He is one of a handful of indigenous scientists to have worked on the recent IPCC 6 assessment report. We're discussing the history and the legacy of the IPCC, the recent phenomena of indigenous participation, as well as the report's incompleteness and other acts of settler colonial violence in relationship to the climate crisis. And now part two of our interview with Dr. Kyle White. How does how can we utilize say uh, political instruments like the UN's Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, or what kind of instruments do you see and vision as part of uh, Indigenous peoples working uh, not just collaboratively collaboratively with each other, but with non-Indigenous peoples? And you know, I was thinking of uh, the UN's Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, such as Articles 20 through 32, right, which discuss um, or speak to in environmental concerns, if you will. And so I was wondering, maybe you could speak to that. Like, uh, the, what are the tools of an of empowerment that you see envisioned or you being used? I think that the direction that we need to go, and uh, you know, I am saying this in respect to where a lot of non-native, uh, you know, non-indigenous uh, initiatives really run afoul. Yeah. is they still think that the the way to to serve uh, indigenous people only operates at a very surface level or a very unidimensional level, uh, like just one kind of at, at one dimension. And they don't really want to grapple with the fact that the history of colonialism, and it gets worse uh, as each day goes by, has actually created a situation where short-term solutions like the creation of a rights declaration mm-hmm. are not going to have the impact that they need to, at least not within anybody's lifetime. And part of the problem is, and you can look at this in the U.S. government, at the United Nations, is because they give indigenous people such a limited amount of opportunities to raise their voices that once an indigenous person, an individual person who may be representing a community or or many communities articulates a problem, articulates an issue, articulates a need for rights, then usually the response by the dominant organizations, uh, such as the UN or a national government, is that they create a 
uh, a right or a, a legal instrument, and it's almost always one that has no teeth to it. Right. Uh, so it's always more symbolic. But then what they also do is that if there is some teeth to it, uh, then they leave out they leave out any type of guidance that could be offered by indigenous people or other experts about how that right or how that legal instrument will be implemented. And so we've seen this, for example, with the Biden administration in the United States, that they came in saying, look, we're going to honor those indigenous and those black and brown voters that put us in office, and we're going to create these big initiatives. We're going to create an initiative that says, you know, out of hundreds of billions of dollars of infrastructure funding, 40% of the benefits of those uh, investments are to go to communities that have been left out for generations uh, from previous infrastructure investments. And there's a lot of climate change uh, infrastructure that is in there, energy infrastructure, climate resilient infrastructure. So they came in with this big uh, initiative at the White House level and others, like the 30 by 30 conservation initiative about conserving 30% of America's lands and waters by 2030. But they neglected the fact that in a system that has for generations now been set up so that indigenous people, black and brown communities and others have not been able to receive any benefits from anything that the U.S. did, that there's a lot of repair and institutional reform and a lot of lessons learned about why people don't get benefits from things or why people don't emerge uh, as new leaders within policies promulgated by dominant societies. So they created initiatives where the funding was there, philanthropy backed those initiatives, but there was no way to implement them. Uh, there was no way to put them in practice. And so right now, this is similar to, to initiatives on indigenous rights in the United Nations. There's millions and billions of dollars each year that's supposed to go to indigenous communities, that's supposed to make up for histories of land dispossession and disempowerment and oppression, uh, but it never arrives there. And the people that that do end up getting paid are the dominant non-governmental organizations, the dominant governments, uh, uh, the entrepreneurs from dominant societies, the contractors, the money flows out of or never arrives to indigenous communities. And so what we need the dominant institutions to do is actually support bigger delegations of indigenous people to offer their voice, not just about the needs for rights, uh, but the needs for new institutions that can implement something like, say, free, prior, and informed consent. We have the right to free, prior, and informed consent, but how do you implement that in countries that, for example, have not respected indigenous consent for several centuries, uh, uh, and they never respected it in the first place, and that lack of respect has been sedimented in those national laws, policies, cultures, norms, ways of doing things for centuries. And implementation ranges from everything from the, the diplomatic processes with indigenous people to the hard finance, the loans, the transfer of resources, the decision-making structures. And native people know a lot about how to do this, but the native people who know about these things are not ones that a lot of people in the dominant society really want to hear from. And so we need an approach where we are able to come as whole delegations that can speak to the needs for rights 
and all of the different lessons learned about how to implement those rights so that change actually happens instead of the continued repetition of this cycle where you get some political climates where people want to do stuff on behalf of indigenous people, but it doesn't get implemented. And then the other side of that is the backlash where we go into a a stage where people just directly seek to disempower us with no compunction whatsoever. So am I, am I hearing more reconciliation or reconciliation has to be uh, part, part of uh, the funding and, and the inclusion and, and the respect for indigenous voices? Absolutely. The, the, <laughs> if, you look at, um, if you look at how societies and governments like the United States are organized, um, they're, they're organized like an hourglass where when it comes to dealing with social justice issues. And what I mean by that is that, you know, if you look at an hourglass, you know, and if the sand is the, the resources, um, you know, they, they know how to get kind of people at the top in government or philanthropy or private industry. Uh, they kind of know how to get them to buy into kind of mobilizing their resources for a certain purpose. Um, but at the bottom part of the hourglass is the, the needs, the, the rights needs, the economic needs, the, 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 you know, the, the, the need to live free from discrimination. Um, uh, and the resources are supposed to provide relief. They're supposed to make up for generations of disinvestment and disempowerment and racism. Uh, but the, the, the glass, the glass itself is, is thin in the middle. And so what happens is as the resources start, uh, you know, the sands uh, start going through the middle of the hourglass, they don't go all at once and they don't go in a way that's equally uh, distributed. And they trickle so slowly that uh, none of the work gets done before it's eventually overturned by the next political administration that thinks completely differently and does not support the mobilization of large amounts of resources. And why is that out? Why is that hourglass so thin is because countries like the United States and the United Nations uh, is just like this. They don't invest in the middle of the hourglass. If you're somebody that works at the interface between say tribal government, whether federally or state recognized or or Native Hawaiian uh, or Indigenous people in U.S. territories, if you're somebody that works at that interface, that is an area that is extremely underfunded. If you are a tribal staff member, for example, uh, if you are somebody that is an elected leader that works within the consultative sphere, that is an area that's underfunded, it's high pressure, it's high workload, and that career pathways are designed to make it so you don't stay there for a long time. Take tribal liaisons working for U.S. agencies. Usually a liaison, it's not their full-time job. It's like 15% or less or 5% of their job. And it's considered to be something you do to move into a, a task later in your career where you won't have to work on tribal issues. So the middle of the hourglass receives no resources. But that's the area that because of colonialism, because of the history of U.S. racism, has been completely neglected and disempowered. 
And that issue is not addressed by the funding initiatives. That is not addressed by the allocation of resources. You have to fix that middle of the hourglass so that the actual resources flow to communities uh, in ways that communities can take leadership uh, over. Now, this is not to say that the receipt of resources is, you know, like our only solution. You know, I'm not even talking about or getting into that domain of what indigenous people through organizations, through governments, through their own activities can just do on their own. I think that's a, another topic. Uh, yeah. But in this area of what dominant societies need to be doing to be accountable for the harm and the violence that they have benefited from for generations, uh, they're still looking at it in a way that will produce the same disappointing results decade after decade. They need to address the middle of the hourglass. They need to take seriously the fact they've sucked all the air out of those exact relationships that need to be strong in order for the big initiatives to actually make a difference for tribal, indigenous, and, and other communities. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Dr. Kyle White of the Potawatomi Nation, professor and scientist who worked on the recent IPCC 6 assessment report. We're discussing the legacy of the IPCC, the WMO, the phenomena of indigenous participation, as well as the incompleteness of the report in relationship to settler colonial violence and the climate crisis. And now back to the interview. I keep thinking of treaties and the trust responsibilities when I'm listening you listening to your response there towards the end. You mentioned um, the administration, the Biden administration. And I was just curious, uh, just given the many hats and the greater responsibility that comes with wearing many different hats, um, uh, has there been a significant change uh, between the Trump administration and the Biden administration, considering we're, we're you know, just ha- just over the midpoint with the Biden administration. Yeah, and it's uh, a bit complicated, I think, to understand the change. So, you know, I think that there's that there's two things that two things, maybe three things that are notable, at least from my perspective, to to kind of put out there. You know, so the first thing is that. Uh, the difference between the Democrats and Republicans uh, has not always been one that has painted the Democrats as being, you know, sort of a, a truly or radically uh, better alternative. Uh, you know, for example, uh, on different committees I've been part of at the state level, you know, when I've been on them under Republican, you know, administrations, um, you know, or on them during uh Democratic administrations, you know, the, yeah, their, their decision-making was, uh, you know, was, was different, you know, like for example, in a democratic administration, uh, oftentimes you'd be on committees where the majority of the people on the committee would be, uh, representatives from indigenous or black and brown communities. But then the, the way that decisions would made would be consensus, meaning that if there was one, person that hated uh you know indigenous or or black or brown people they could literally filibuster the whole process Mm -hmm. um whereas in a republican administration you'd have far less on a committee indigenous or black and brown representatives but then decision making would be a majority vote and you'd simply get outnumbered 
And so it's like, well, which, <laughs> which is better, which is, is worse. Um, uh, they're both pretty bad and they're both pretty disempowering. And if you look at something like the Biden Harris administration, so the, and the Trump administration, so the Trump administration pretty much ceased, you know, significant or meaningful consultative duties with tribes. And so the Biden administration came in right away with a big memo right. saying that they were going to get consultation going again. But friends of mine that are elected tribal officials have told me that the Biden administration has consulted too much uh, without providing a capacity for tribes to participate meaningfully in those consultations. And so many tribes are overwhelmed by consultative requests with technical information uh, and with, you know, uh, uh, that, that require people spend time with the issues to understand how they can meaningfully participate. And so Democrats have to break this cycle where they're not actually a radically better alternative. So that's one aspect. Um, uh, another aspect is there is change that's happening. You know, the Biden administration put a huge emphasis on environmental justice and a huge emphasis on indigenous sovereignty, but they didn't actually delegate very many people to do this job. There's a, you know, for example, a, a volunteer White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council that I'm a member of, which is entirely volunteer. There's a Council on Environmental Quality, which is in the White House, but who just has a few staff who are paid uh, to work on these big justice uh, and sovereignty uh, issues. Um, there is now a Native American Affairs office within the White House and, and an office that works on Native Hawaiian issues. Uh, but again, if you look at the lift, the heavy lifts that those offices have and compare that to the staffing, um, it's not nearly enough staffing to pull off what the, 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 the Biden uh, agenda is. And so at the very beginning of the Biden administration, there was a lot of frustration over this. But people also, at the same time, people in agencies, people in tribes, uh, didn't wait for the real investment in staffing and expertise uh, to come. They already got started. And so you're seeing agencies now with new environmental justice programs, with allocating resources in ways that uh, are going to potentially change the way that those agencies do business. And so we are seeing the change come, but I think it's difficult for people to get a grip on that because it's happening so locally and internally in different agencies, and there's not great public dissemination of this information that it feels like not a lot is happening. And the third thing I would say is that even if none of the the Biden-Harris initiatives uh, work out and uh, you know, they don't even get a second term, you know, even if that happens, I think some of the initiatives that have been put in place, like this Justice 40 initiative, about 40% of the benefits of major investments going to communities that experience disadvantage, uh, it is setting an ethos, and it is something that philanthropy and others will continue on, even under a hostile administration, and will return under a different democratic administration. And when it returns, we're going to be equipped to know exactly how to navigate it based on what we've learned under this administration. 
Oh, thank you for that. And um, just a couple final questions um, as we wrap up here. I want to come back to the IPCC six assessment report um, that you and so many other people were instrumental in its productions. And for our listeners, um, uh, what do you want people to take away from the report? I want people to take away from the IPCC report that another confirmation, of course, that the scientific information says that we need to do something about climate change. But what people really need to take away from that report, even though the report doesn't say this exactly, um, um, but that actually the fight against racism, that is actually the fight against, that is the fight against uh, climate change. You know, one of the biggest factors, I'm speaking in a fairly pragmatic sense, Mm -hmm. that prevents us from having, like say in the U.S., a legitimate climate change, renewable energy policy is racism. The people that oppose climate change policy, climate change action, are people that are inspired by racism, are people that are seeking to protect racial privilege. If we are able to end racism, and I think other forms of oppression, we can say the same thing too, uh, but just thinking about race, if we can end racism, we will have literally ended the premier barrier to taking climate action. And because the sixth assessment report not only has indigenous authors, but also allied authors who have called out colonialism, which is a type of racism, have called out colonialism, they've called out social injustice in terms of what it is, a cause, a factor of climate change, and a barrier preventing people from experiencing the worst forms of damages and harms and violence. And so I think people need to read into that report and realize that it's providing some evidence, not the best evidence, not the, the greatest, uh, right? But, but it's, it's made a, a tiny little step in just affirming that we know what to do. And if you are out there working to end racism, you are actually doing work that will put us in a position to be able to end the, the horrors of climate injustice. And Kyle, Kyle um, uh, just final question, just given um, your tremendous uh, amount of work in contributions and sacrifices and just given where we are and in our lived experiences individually and collectively wherever we might be uh, uh, what is your message to the youth my message to the the youth is that we have a intergenerational legacy of taking action to to make change to protect our communities. And I really respect the courage of so many indigenous youth uh, and so many youth across the board that are both putting out their knowledge, their own knowledge as young people, their own knowledge about how to make change, but also backing it up by doing that grassroots organizing work, by doing that political work, by doing that community cultivation work, by doing that work to protect and to secure uh, indigenous traditions and knowledge. And so I really want to communicate to youth that a lot of us see that we, we have turned a page, that the youth have turned a page and are able to show what it is to be politically savvy, 
to be politically loud, but to also be somebody that takes time to cultivate their community traditions. And I think so many of us, kind of in my generation before, uh, we experienced that struggle of how do you both uh, remain, retain that local legitimacy, but also make an impact on the international stage. Uh, and I feel that maybe some of that work we did navigating that, and I'm not just speaking about people in my generation, but many before as well, but a lot of work we did navigating that to really try to figure out what it means to be somebody that has that local community legitimacy, whether you're in your own homeland or living somewhere else, but wherever it is that you live permanently, right, to retain that legitimacy, that connectedness, that relevance, but to also have a national, international impact. Um, I hope that some of that work has made it more possible for youth to uh, be setting the standard that they're now studying for the future. The moment of silence is over. And that was Dr. Kyle White in the second part of our two-part interview on the IPCC-6 assessment report, the phenomena of Indigenous participation in the report, as well as its incompleteness, settler colonial violence, in the time of the climate crisis, and more. And that concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to our guest, Dr. Kyle White. A special thank you to our musical guest, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, Buffy St. Marie, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studios of Burnt Swamp Studios in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. Why your freedom manifests on their graves And the blood never comes clean from the guilty minds Nor the hands that hold the chains Silence is over.